Thank you. As we enter this Christmas season, appreciate that, Kimberly, and all the young people with her. Let's pray. Father, we are in your house seeking to draw near to you. Thankful, Lord, that you are so patient and willing to draw near to us. And as we come, I pray, may we be truly humble. May we be true. May we be a merciful people. So I'm asking now, Lord, that you would guide this part of our worship service as we look at the life, the last chapter of Daniel's life as recorded in sacred scripture. Bless us now to that end, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, please take them out, open them to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, this will be the last chapter that is historical part of the book of Daniel. The last six chapters are full of prophecies which still captivate our attention. The first six chapters show us what to expect at the time of the end. The book is about the time of the end. And we find ourselves in chapter 6 approaching the end of Daniel's life. He is an older man, many believe beyond 80 years of age, and he is in a position of influencing another king and another kingdom. Daniel chapter 6. Babylon by way of a dynasty is gone. Babylon by way of a geographic area remains. But now the Medes and the Persians are in charge. Daniel 6. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 100, verse 1, and 20 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary or excellent spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. This morning as we start, I want us to recognize that there's something that sets God's people apart and it's the very essence of who they are. It's distinguished from what they do, and it touches all that they accomplish. Daniel is an old man. Every day of his life, he was choosing who he was becoming. And as he chose who he became, he became something that preceded him in his distinguished accomplishments as a statesman. If we could use the word politician, I'm not sure we want to use that word. He was appointed, he didn't run for office, and yet he held important place in this kingdom. There's something about this man right from the early days of a very short kingship for Darius that creates a significant recognition that he's a step above everybody else. That spirit is the spirit of love for other people. Genuine love for Nebuchadnezzar when he was going to face a rebuke from God of seven years of his sanity. 
genuine care in the heart of Daniel for the trauma he might cause uh, the overseer of the young ex of food, similar to Joseph in the prison in Egypt. There is an element of person that rises above the regular rank and file of humanity and begins to show itself in a courtesy, a nobility, a kindness, a humility, a confidence, an inner strength. And the new king recognizes it. You can't tag this onto your life. This is something that is woven into the fabric of your being as you behold Jesus. This is why day by day it becomes important that we kneel at the foot of the cross and we reflect on the love of God and we examine the life of Christ made manifest. And when it's all said and done, slowly and imperceptibly, we become like him. This is what Darius noticed about Daniel, is that it's not that he was better at administration only. It's not that he was more respectful to all, both those of position and place and those of none. It's the very fabric that everything Daniel was touched everything Daniel did, and the king noticed it. And what more so, we don't know the age of King Darius, but we do know that Daniel is an aged man. And there is a sense of trustworthiness about this man. Who wouldn't want this godly, fatherly, wise, and kind person, one you could trust with no ambition for Medo-Persian accolades and accomplishments, but one that would genuinely seek to do good because good is what should be done? Now, I think the question we all have to ask ourselves, is there an excellent spirit in us? Or are we negative, which is the bipolar opposite of an excellent spirit? Have we not understood, have we not put on the helmet of, of salvation so that we can think good thoughts? Do you not know that you're saved by the intervention of Jesus Christ? Do you understand that you're to have assurance and salvation? Do you realize that nothing's going to come to you except it passes through the nail-pierced hands of Christ? Can you trust him? Are you hopeful? Or is the glass half empty or less than half? There are people that repel from the beginning because there is no excellent spirit in them. The spirit in them is actually noxious. And there's an element of cloudiness that hangs with them. And wherever they go, it doesn't matter how hard they try or what they do, the, 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 the spirit surrounding them is repulsive. Now, I'm not here to suggest that somehow that God's people possess a Pollyannish dynamic of unfettered optimism, although I do believe there is an underlying steady strength and hope and potential sense that things are going to get better, that gives them this buoyancy. But what kind of spirit do we have? You can't get a new spirit on your own. You can't create a new spirit for your life. What comes into the life of a Christian is when they come to Christ, the healing touch is laid on them, and something starts to happen in them they couldn't do for themselves. We begin to see that I'm okay in Christ. I'm more than okay. We begin to sense that we begin to see there's potential in everyone. 
We begin to recognize that what frustrated our plans as we hurried, maybe to do more than we should, was a divine roadblock or speed bump. God is at work to actually make our very person the first witness, not what we can accomplish. And along the way, whether it's building a church in El Salvador, I know when I sit down with the leaders of our mission trips, I try to explain to them. So I'll just explain it to the whole church today. You may not get done what you want done. This worship service may not turn out the way we want it to turn out. I mean, we've had real bloopers sometimes, if you want to call them that, even in the public worship service. But how are we treating each other? And do we know the real goal is the building up of each other, the fitting together of these living stones, emitting light for Christ, the unity, the tightness, the togetherness. Daniel was a surrendered I would say Christian, except that he predates Christ by 600 years, but he was a surrendered, principled follower of God. And in time, he only reflected more of that which early in his life he chose to reflect. He didn't choose later in his life to do it, although choose whenever you hear, friends. But he received the excellent spirit from God. And yes, he was good in what he did. We know that because the enemies come after him. They're going to examine everything he does. They're going to look for a flaw everywhere he's been, everything he signed, every committee he was in, and they just can't find it. So this morning, I want you to know there's hope in Christ. I've entitled this message, Headed for the Den. That's where we're going. I want everybody to know here, big down or no, big hope, yes. The truth of the matter is, if you live long enough to see Christ come, you're headed for the den. Some people are headed to the wrong den. They have nowhere to pray in their home, but they have a place to go to entertain themselves. That's the wrong den. There are a lot of people right now that are finding solace and saying a step away from all risk, interacting in society, especially when it comes to the church. God is actually calling us, if you can go out and work for a living, you can go out and serve God for love. God is calling us to step away from those things which motivate and move the world and come closer into an encounter with him to where it's obvious there is this residing hope, this bubbling sense of optimism that it's going to be okay. Daniel was shelved by Belshazzar in the last chapter. God brings him out of retirement in this chapter. And are we surprised that in not too long time, he's being elevated to the highest spot and it creates a problem. So I want to ask yourself, is there anything about, and I don't want to turn the journey, the focus on us, but let's take just a moment to and ask ourselves, is there anything in my life that's short-circuiting this excellent spirit? Am I a good cultural Adventist without this excellent spirit? I'll tell you what an excellent spirit looks like to a pastor. It looks like somebody who realizes there's someone bigger than another human being to help them. In other words, they might come to see another spiritual leader, but when they come, they're not coming to make that person into God. They're coming to share and maybe get some insight, but their hope is in heaven. Their hope is in a living Savior. An excellent spirit is someone that goes the extra mile without complaining. An excellent spirit is someone who's willing to take care of the ordinary. It doesn't have to be significant. An excellent spirit is someone that's cheerful in doing that which many others don't want to do. That spirit is exceptionally attractive no matter where you are and no matter what you're doing. 
The truth of the matter is, is that it created a real problem in the kingdom for Darius to start promoting Daniel. And I don't know how many people he talked to, but they found out, and pretty soon, they were going to try to frustrate his plans. Now, there will be two types of people at the time of the end. They're going to be people with an excellent spirit, and they're going to be people with an envious evil spirit. And you are slowly trending one way or the other. Everybody needs to know that. You don't show up at the, uh, at the time of Jacob's trouble. You don't show up in the time of the end and all of a sudden get out your, I'm going to have an excellent spirit coat and throw it on. Get out, I'm going to be hopeful, positive, and faithful hat and put it on. The truth of the matter is the way you treat your husband at home, the way you treat your wife, when nobody else can see, the encounters you have with your kids, it doesn't mean they're all positive because some of them are not positive. I'm a true blue living father of four, married for 35 years. I know there's ups and downs and bumps on the road. But what it does mean is that in the normal, ordinary dynamics of life, in the regular routines of what we're doing, there is something about me that's becoming more like Jesus, not less. So when you're asked to do the dishes, young people, when you're asked to go the extra mile, when you want to get online and do this, or you want to be with your friends and do that, do you possess an excellent spirit, or is it just like everybody else? And yes, my name is written on the church books. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Friends, it's going to take a whole lot more to go to the den the way Daniel went. Is there anything about our lives that becomes so noticeable? I want you to think about this. Daniel is distinctly for God. So much so that after they've examined all the regular routine things of the workplace, they come together and they say, you know what, this isn't going to work. The only way this is going to work is if we find a way to angle his unique religion against him. That was his co-workers who knew this. That was his boss. As soon as he knew the plan, the mask was ripped off the plan. And that was his enemies. Enemies, co-worker, and boss. They all knew Daniel was different. Should the world recognize that excellent spirit in us and its source by the uniquenesses? We already know that Daniel found himself in some unique and compromised places along with his friends. Not compromised in the sense of moral purity and character, but compromised in the sense of security and safety, obedience, and going along with the crowd. Missing from the narrative... When you go from verse 4 to verse 5, is the fact that everybody knew about Daniel's religious life. When you live openly for God, you're no longer the, the, the world's version of, of the funny, witty, on top of it person. When you live open for God, and there's this sweet humility and this wonderful, serene confidence that's inside of you because you're walking with the Master. People cannot help but take notice, and it will put you in compromised moments in the sense of maybe a business deal you want to strike or a friendship you'd like to create. But along the way, those become building blocks in the sanctuary of your life, the character of who you are, and they become a wall of protection for you. Living open for Jesus is a vanguard of protection for the Christian. Now, when we look at this storyline, we see a lot of subtlety. Verse 7, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together. They're talking to the king. 
that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. And therefore, King Darius whipped out his quill and he signs the document. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, and now in his roof chamber, he had a window open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Now, I want to ask everybody in this audience and everybody that will watch this online. Why is this not presumption? He's going to place himself in the crosshairs of persecution. And all he needs to do to not do this is go back into some other room, even not on his rooftop. So why is this not presumption? And I want to ask everybody who's listening in as well, because in this age of COVID-19, limiting freedoms, in this case, sometimes reaching beyond, in some people's minds, the legitimate ability to direct not only whether you can go to a house of worship or what you can do in a house of worship. For those that will tout Romans 13, where it says we're basically to obey the laws of the land, I want you to understand it's not that simple. There are contradictions of spirit and purpose and mission and primacy and sometimes public witness in regards to the overall experience of the life of a Christian that demands some measure of spiritual backbone where somebody says, I'm headed for the den. I want you to realize that Daniel knew before the king got his quill out and signed it with the law of the Medes and the Persians, where it was all headed. And he wasn't at home with his knees knocking. And he wasn't at home with his lips quivering. And he wasn't at home losing sleep over what's going to happen. Because from the beginning, Daniel had decided he was going to put it all on God and see what happened. When you grow up in a Jerusalem home, when you grow up under the shadow of the Mecca, when you're in a place where everybody else is sort of doing what they should, but nobody needs to stand out, it becomes hard to become a standout. But Daniel decides somewhere on the way from Jerusalem to Babylon, he's going to be who God called him to be. My guess is, based on looking at the life of Daniel, he probably decided that ahead of time, but we can't prove it. And here's Daniel on this journey of a lifetime coming to the end and he's one more time in a position. But you need to know something. If there hadn't been a beginning, there wouldn't be an end. In other words, we won't do it now, but in, our, in your bulletin, Spirit of Prophecy basically says, if he had not decided about the food, little deal in the minds of some. If he had not decided to honor God at the table, there wouldn't have been any honoring God in the halls of legislative or in the den of lions. 
Daniel is in a position where he decided early on it was all God's. And God, he was all in for God. God was all in for him. And the journey forward was one where he watched God intervene. You cannot head to the den without having had chapters ahead of time to say, all right, this one's going to be different. By the time they take Daniel to the den, the sun is setting. The king has tried all day long to get him out of this thing. The king recognizes the excellency of Daniel compared to the rottenness of the rest of those countlers. And the, and the king is wrestling with what he can do. Is there anybody in this kingdom he can trust? It appears Daniel is about the only one. And when we come to sunset, Daniel is summoned. And it appears that the king makes the journey to the den, which would be highly unusual. But we know that the king puts his signet ring. It, sa- it has overtones of the experience of Jesus as he walked to the dark den of death. The stone is rolled over. Daniel has been dropped in. The signet of not only the king, but everybody else is on that stone. Nobody's going to mess with this. There'll be no way out of this for Daniel. But it appears that somehow Daniel's short and brief encounter with the king has made a powerful impact. And Daniel is being encouraged by one who has found encouragement from him. Verse 14, as soon as the king heard this statement. In other words, the jaws of the trap closed on Daniel. He was deeply distressed, and he set his mind on delivering him. Verse 16, then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in, and he was cast into the lion's den. The king spoke, and he said to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually or constantly, will himself deliver you. The stone was brought, laid over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring, and with the signet rings of the nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to the palace, and he spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Now, I can't prove what I'm about to say, and I have no way of suggesting that it really happened, but what I find when I'm reading here about the king's activity He has no food, he has no music, he has no sleep. When you have no food, and you have no music, and you have no sleep, and your last words are a word of living testimony to a man whose life in all likelihood will be snuffed out unless there is such thing as a divine and a living God and an intervener, is it very possible that this man who is fasting from all things, it appears, is it possible that this king himself tries out this thing called prayer? Is it possible that in the dark nights, the dark Persian nights, that this king himself is hoping and doing more than hoping after testifying about this living God? Is it possible that he's trying something he's never tried before? Pastor, you're beyond the, you're beyond the plain words of Scripture. I may be beyond the plain words of Scripture, but he's the last man there with the last word of encouragement. The next morning, he's the first man there with a word, a question of encouragement. And I can't believe for a moment that a man of intelligence ruling over the vast expanse of the Persian Empire couldn't sense the excellency that, of God that made the excellency of Daniel. We don't know what happens in the secret lives of people that we're dealing with, but if our lives are fragrant with Christ, if the Spirit is operative in who we are, then we must have 
hope and confidence that behind the scenes, the Spirit is taking the people farther than we may ever know. The king went off to his palace. He spent the night. Verse 19. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and he went in haste to the lion's den. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke, and he said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. You just got to pause right there. (laughs) Servant of the living God. The stories have been told by Daniel and others. The chapters of God and his excellency in the lives of the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, a man who was mad for seven years but who became a follower of the true God. The stories have been told. Has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And out of the darkness of that rank hole, Daniel speaks to the king. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me inasmuch as I found innocence before him. And also toward you, O king, and I've committed no crime. How many of you can see in your mind's eye that picture in the, in the storybooks that we read our children of Daniel standing there with a shaft of light on him and the angels, the big head of a, a male angel right here and another one circling behind him and that angel standing by Daniel said, how many of you can see that picture in your mind? Put it in the minds of your kids. They're going to need it. Teach them that there's a living God. Live distinctly and differently. Put the church at the center. Keep that walk with God central. Remember, this church is the apple of God's eye. And enfeebled and defective as it may be, it is the one object of His supreme regard. It's the instrumentality in which you found out the good news. And whether it came directly through the church or through somebody else whose life was intersected by another person who had an excellent spirit, by a whole group of people who had an excellent spirit, somehow the message got out. And the message was going to get out before Daniel died one more time. O king... Live forever. God sent his angel, and he's going to send his angels again. As a matter of fact, his angels are walking with you day by day and step by step. But how often do you think about it? And how often do you say, Lord, thank you for the angels that attend me? Listen, there are moments in your life when you're saved from something distinct, and you know it. You know that without divine intervention, that was a tragedy that didn't happen or that was waiting to happen. But how many times do you not understand that the angel's right there prompting you, verbalizing, as it were, in the mind of your conscience, giving you encouragement to do right, leading you into the path of someone who needs an encounter with someone with an excellent spirit? Do you even believe in angels? Or are we so slowly becoming like the world that we don't even really believe this stuff is true? The world is separating. Which way are we going? This father figure, Daniel, loved this king, gave him good counsel, and he was jubilant, the Scripture says. The king was very pleased, verse 23. And he gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. 
Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatsoever was found upon him because he had trusted in God. One version talks about the king being exceedingly glad. What an amazing story. The outcome is another testimony. How many times in the book of Daniel are the kings sending out to all the kingdom witnesses about the intervention of God? Is it any wonder that 600 years later, Persian princes would be making their way to Jerusalem? It's a holdover of the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends. And so these wise men, three or more or less, however they may be, that come to see Jesus, they're nothing but a legacy. They are the inheritors of this awesome message, these noble Persians coming to pay homage to the one that had brightened the den for Daniel and would brighten the world. The question I think that comes to us when we look at this story is which den are we headed for and which den is shaping our lives? You know, everybody should have a place in their home where they pray. And in Psalm 55, verse 17, Daniel says that he'll pray morning, noon, and night. As a matter of fact, let's look at it because the verbiage is interesting. Psalm 55, looking at verse 17. It's not only that he'll pray, but it's that in his prayer, there are different forms of communication. Psalm 55, looking at verse 17. Evening and morning and noon. It's interesting what this version says. I will complain and murmur, and he will hear my voice. Certainly, we know that God calls us to prayer in the morning, but some people are too busy. They think. God was calling Daniel into a relationship of security, which is the greatest peace to have, especially in an age of insecurity. Everybody should have in their house a place where they meet God. And nobody should have in their house a place where they worship before the idols of this age. Everybody should have in their place an appointment, an element that brings thoughts of God to mind when you go there. And you may have a little house, so you may not have a lot of of space. You may just have a favorite window. And by the way, kneeling down is not the only way to pray. Solomon stood when he prayed. Eliezer stood when he prayed. Kneeling is what we know many have done and is appropriate for many times and places. But do you have a place to go where you meet with God? And is it so significant to you that it's the most important appointment of the day? If not, you may be making a journey to the wrong den. And the future den will look exceptionally distressing to you. God calls us into an encounter that's going to take our hands off the things that would make us love this world and puts our hands on the promises of faith that make us unafraid of what this world can do to us. And that's really the situation that we're finding ourselves in. Fear like a disease is stalking this land. Spiritual disease. Elemental to the human experience. Focused around self. God has pointed out in the stories of Daniel, not only is there no detriment in living open for God, although there will be some suffering, some persecution. Is there anything in our life you think enough to be persecuted for? Do we talk different? Do we eat different? Do we dress different? Do we watch different? Do we spend different? 
All of these things are fruits. And while we could talk about them, the main thing is the centerpiece of Christ enthroned within. This morning, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to end on something that I wasn't, I'm going to end on something that I, I want you to know about. This is the last time I'm going to preach on this subject in this series. And I'm going to take the last few minutes and say a few things that for some will be controversial. But I'm going to do it because I believe in truth. I'm not doing it from any other motivation except that. So I will probably post some of this to the website so you can look at it yourself. But it's important for me, especially in an age of misinformation, that true information is how we make our decisions. I had three people approach me on this subject matter, all of them very respectable people this week. In this county, we have had either total confirmed or probable cases of COVID, 7,432. Now, probably it's a lot more. But of that 7,432 out of a population of 154,000, we've had 116 people die from this disease. It's sad. What that means is that the deaths to population is seven one-hundredths of one percent. Now, you can get this data right off the Berrien County COVID dashboard, so please go do it. Check it out. If you were 80 years of older, you represent 60% of those deaths, 70 deaths of the 116. If you were 70 to 79, 26 deaths or 22%. If you were 60 to 69, 13 deaths or 11%. If you were 50 to 59, four people in that age category or 3.5%. If you were under 50, 40 to 49, three deaths. And if you were under 40, not one single person in this county has died of COVID. Okay, so what? The second thing I'm holding in my hands this morning is a copy of the John Hopkins newsletter published since 1896. This one is done by the graduate students. And I probably will post this to our website. A closer look at U.S. deaths due to COVID. From mid-March to September, U.S. deaths have reached, does anybody want to get a guess? How many people have died from March to September from all causes? Got your number? 1.7 million. That's how many people have died from everything of which 200,000, when this was written, or 12%, are from COVID. Surprisingly, the deaths from older people stayed the same 
before and after COVID-19. Now, I'm not going to take time to read this, but I'm going to tell you what it is. This graduate student went to the CDC, examined the death rates for the last six years from the CDC statistics, and what she found was that the death rate in America has stayed basically the same. And what more is that she found, and this is where fact is going to create friction, is that the deaths of COVID, you would expect a spike in the death rate if you were listening. How could we end up with such a wrong perception is the question that is asked here. How could we end up with such a wrong perception? Why is there no big spike in the death rate in America? It's, there is no spike. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at a graph right now that has the last six years of deaths in America from 2014 to 2020. And when you come up to March, when you come up to 2020, what you see is that deaths for almost every other cause take this precipitous plunge. Are people not dying from heart disease? Are people not dying from other diseases? And so she puts it in a plain old graph. And what she shows us is that in this period of time from March to September, that we have over 1,200 people in this reporting time that have died, that have not died from heart disease, that would have died from heart disease. And you go right down through the list. And what you see is this amazing decrease in, attri in, in the uh, attributable deaths to any other cause. And so, because all of us have heard about it anecdotally and wondered, some of you are doctors and nurses and physical therapists, the basic bottom line of this article is that if you die of anything, but you have COVID, it's listed as COVID. But the fact of the matter is, statistically, it's catching up with us because you're no longer listed of dying from heart disease or diabetes or whatever it might be. Those statistics are reported right here. This is not, as a matter of fact, this was up on their website in the newsletter for two days. They did not take it down. They just moved it to another spot. Pastor, are you a conspiratist? No, I'm not. But I am going to tell you this. When it's all said and done, God's people are going to have to have an excellent spirit and determine that their public worship and their public witness and their public confession, and their ministry has to go forward. I had one more thing which I'll share here. The person who brought it to my attention is sitting in the audience right now. And they just, they brought it up. I don't know if it was Good Morning America or what it was. I sat there and watched it with him. And I sat and listened to something I could hardly believe. It's still available. I sat and listened to one of our major three news agencies right at the very beginning bring on experts from UCLA and tell us 
that mask wearing doesn't do any good. Now, do not for a moment misunderstand me. Wear your mask. Especially if you're sick, stay home. And especially if you think you might be sick, wear your mask. And you wear your mask wherever you're supposed to wear your mask. But don't let the mask define your spirit. Be a person who's respectful of other people. Remember that in the end, God holds our breath in his hand. But let us not be walking through this age in fear. And let us understand something. We are all, if we live, headed for the den. So how are you going? Your knees knocking and afraid? Or are you going to keep letting the Spirit speak peace and power to your life? God is calling us to be people of truth. The truth is we need to cooperate with public health efforts. The truth also is we are not to be manipulated and lied to by any outlet of media, left or right. The truth is, is that if we're not careful, we'll be very subtly squeezed into the mold of this world. And the mold of this world without a living Christ is fear. At what price do we surrender our personal prayer lives to money or the press of education or any other thing? And very closely related to it, at what price do we surrender our public in this country and in this state right to assemble? At what price? And do we really think that there is not, since the Bible said we should gather more, not less, do we really think there is not some very tangible benefit to a strengthened team, a bonded brotherhood, a linked sisterhood, a generational pass of the baton, do we really think there's nothing to all those things? I'll tell you this. One missionary used to say, I wish I had the actual anecdote. In effect, I didn't know how real those stories of the angels were until I made the dark walks through the dusty roads of Africa with the panthers and the leopards and everything else prowling around. There are spiritual panthers and spiritual lepers. Yes, there's a lion that's going about seeking whom he can devour. The jaws and the fangs of fear are what he's using to intimidate. Is there not a cause? Is there not a world to win? Should we be less fervent in this moment of more fear? I'm appealing to you, especially those who have found themselves as good Romans 13 citizens, hunkering down at home, taking no risk in the battle for redemption. These are the last words in seven sermons, risk and redemption. Daniel knew where he was going before they signed the paper. Daniel knew where he was going after they signed the paper. Daniel knew where he was going when he was escorted by the king. 
It was not an act of presumption because the glory of God was on the line. And the next morning, the king knew more than he knew the night before. There is a living God. So don't act like he's dead. <laughs> and let him have control over everything. And let's walk with him. All right, now we're not going to sing the closing hymn. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to have a benediction. And then we'll have a brief postlude and go into our Sabbath school. Lord, it appears that all information is able to be manipulated. I'm very aware of this, Lord. Most people listening to me are very aware of this. Your spirit cuts through the darkness and speaks truth. We will be held accountable when we have ignored the deepening convictions of that voice. More than that, Lord, we will diminish our confidence, our joy, our pleasure, and our power when we turn away from the simple directives of heaven. I'm praying, Lord, that you would give us all the nobility of Daniel, the boldness of Daniel, the humility of Daniel, the confidence and peace and the fearlessness of Daniel. So for the little chapters that will try our faith and test our courage, make us faithful. And I pray, Lord, may we be courteous and thoughtful citizens, and may we be faithful to the mission, which it appears can be easily squelched. Guide us now, I ask. May we go forward wisely, patiently. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.